Good day, all. My name is Patrick. I'm a lovable guy and an alcoholic. And what a pleasure this is to have this moment to uh, introduce my bosom buddy, lifelong pal. Um, I'll just take a minute to talk about that because it's been a long road for he and I in so many ways. Joe came to our group in 1985 when I was a whippersnapper myself, not quite not quite the age he was, but uh, like, and then in suburban Toronto, um, there was three of us under 30 years old in a group of almost maybe 90, right? Whereas, you know, Toronto itself had lots of young whippersnappers like Joe, not quite that young again, but, you know, a different sort of climate so to be sitting there and have this guy come to speak and he's got eight years of sobriety and you know he looks like uh he was a handsome young fella too i'll tell you people <laughs> and funny and charming and it was uh it was an encouraging thing and i was drawn to him immediately you know and, and our we had another mutual friend joe who is no longer with us and uh and because of him our paths crossed you know fairly regularly but wasn't until around 1990 that our our friendship really started to go to a different level. I went through a horrific time, uh, life threatening time, and uh, my buddy was there. It's me so emotional thinking of that time and the meaning of it. You know, just um, he doesn't just talk about this shit or write books about it. He lives it. And I, I tell you quickly, I. I I was fortunate to have another Joe C as a sponsor for 19 years. And, and that guy, he helped me learn how to be a human being, how to love myself, how to, you know, uh, present to the world, uh, just how to bring the best me I could, you know, and he was a devout Catholic and I had been raised Catholic, went to Catholic high school even, but, you know, never had any use for it. And, and, uh, even though he started his day in the Catholic Church, not once did he ever say, oh, Patrick, why don't you think about coming back to the church or whatever, you know? Um, he took what he needed from it and left the rest, and I left it all, right? But that didn't stop me from learning from him so much. Uh, my point here is that Joe was a man who woke up each day thinking, what can I do with it for the alcoholic who still suffers? And he got sober in 1945, and was sober about 60 years when he died and to his dying day it was what can i do for the alcoholic still suffers the young whippersnapper josie i see exactly the same behavior and the same approach that it's not just words it's a man who brings things to the table every day in the hope that you know those that still suffer can be helped and if he can hand, reach his hand out he always has you know um and that's important. I, I used to get a kick out of that, that one was, you know, very much an agnostic and the other was a devout. And I had these Joe C's that uh, had different approaches to the game, but uh, the same bottom line in, in how they reached out to others. And as I say, for me personally, that be, his support of me through the darkness was, uh, I'll never forget it, you know, and our relationship has just grown and grown and grown over these decades. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, my great pleasure to call him my best friend. Um, you know, I, I had stepped away from meetings. Uh, there's one other thing there where uh, I just I just couldn't take traditional anymore. And after decades of attending and 
I didn't float away. I mean, I still sponsor people. I still lived what I believed was a sober life. You know, I didn't feel threatened that I was going to drink, but I wasn't attending. And then it wasn't until the Zoom thing hit. I had been to, you know, uh, to Beyond Belief, the, the physical meeting in Toronto uh, several times for anniversaries and that. It even took, I took people that I sponsored and two of them started agnostic meetings, but I never made the leap. It's like I, I stopped going to traditional, but had this loyal approach to it or some fucked up thing. I don't know what it was. Right. But it wasn't until Zoom and, and, and Joe said to me, why don't you come on along? There's a, a meeting in Toronto that could use a bit of support. And uh, let's see if, you know, there's something there. And that began it. You know, that began the road here for me in, in secular. And uh, oh, my God, what a fresh view this is. It's everything that I needed, you know, and uh and again, it was just something where he reached his hand out to his buddy and said, hey, why don't you, you know, came in, pulled me out of the church. And no, I'm just kidding. Um, but again, to get going with uh, with this part of the journey and to the, the new approach, you know, even, you know, it's when I introduced myself as an alcoholic, like language is important to me today. When I introduced myself as a, as a lovable guy, I need to do that because of the 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 terrible self-image that I had for so long and how hard the work was to find that place, you know, and even like, you know, I'm never going to talk to myself as an alky or, you know, language like that. It just doesn't, doesn't fit for me. So when I hear people introducing themselves, part of me is an alcoholic or I'm a person in recovery, you know, I, I just need to make the leap. Right. Um, but I like the new language there. And I feel like every meeting I go to, I, I learn something because these voices, your voices, so many of you who suffered in silence, for lack of a better term, I didn't know in traditional that so many secular people existed. I just didn't. Right. Anyway, I don't want to get off rambling on me, but for sure I don't. Um, but I do want to say how important it is that uh, I have the relationship with Joe C that I have. And, and uh, my love for him is unconditional. That's a fact. He's walked through some very, very dark things and stayed the course. Um, and I'm proud of you. And what you do here, I'm most proud of. You know, there's a hundred people here for this pop-up meeting that our dear friend Mark and Mark, thank you for having the wherewithal. You always jump, jump in to provide something like this. And look at this. This is fantastic. And Let's have a celebration here of, you know, of, of one man's life. But as it relates to Alcoholics Anonymous, isn't that really what the celebration is? Without AA, what the hell are any of us doing here? And, and how did Joe get sober? doesn't matter if he had a different view of the traditional. It's still the fellowship. It's still the caring for each other and the program. So anyway, that's it. Much love. And this is a happy day for me, too. So thank you, my friend, and tell us about those years. Wow. I, I really thought, you know, 47 isn't a big deal. You know, I I don't know what I did on my belly button 47th birthday, because who cares? You know, 50 would be a big deal. 40 would be a big deal. Um, And I've never stayed sober a year. So it's not like uh, here we are another year, right? It's a uh, day at a time. But 
for for my American cousins, this is uh, you know sort of uh, I, I well now it's called Cyber Monday I guess, but it, it's that 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 holiday time Thanksgiving and then leading up to uh, uh, the solstice and all of the holidays around there and um what you can tell about someone who got sober uh the 27th of november whether it was 1976 when i did or any other time is uh, it, certainly i don't know about everybody but it, it was certainly true of me i didn't think for a minute it was my last drink in fact i didn't even think for a minute it was my last drink uh that year you know if i was serious about quitting drinking i would have waited until after new year's you know like that because it's perfect time right you got okay this is my last run up to recovery i'm gonna just sort of you know uh finish finish with a bang got a, a month and a few days and and let's 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 go crazy let's get nuts and um but I was a run by the seat of the pants kind of alcoholic and uh, drug addict. And I've been kind of a run by the seat of the pants kind of recovery person too. And I was something, my first meeting, I was 14 and uh, would have been... Hmm, uh, 1974 and sometime between the time I went to my first meeting and was did not want what you had um thank you but what's behind door number two really you know it just doesn't look you know somehow dying a tragic alcoholic death seemed more romantic than living sober which seemed like A punishment seemed like um, going to jail seemed like uh, didn't seem like starting all over again. It seemed like giving up and um, getting caught and having to uh, pay the price. That That's all I saw in sobriety. I didn't see any of the good. I just saw what I was giving up. And, you know, as bad as it was, I you know, was holding out for, you know, I what door number two looked like for me is to party the way I was partying without any of the consequences. You know, where, where's that program? <laughs> and um, because if, you know, I was being honest with you, that's what I wanted. But between the time that I went to my first meeting and November 27th, 1976, Alcoholics Anonymous, through the help of Barry L., who brought us uh, just a couple years earlier, Living Sober, uh, compiled a bunch of stories and put out a pamphlet called, Do You Think You're Different? Originally, they were going to call it, So You Think You're Different, but they just thought that was a little too cheeky, and so they changed it to, Do You Think You're Different? And in that pamphlet, there's Ed, a real atheist, 
there's Jan and agnostic and there's uh, Diane a teenager and like I said that pamphlet didn't exist when I came to my first meeting and at the time they wrote that pamphlet and you know there's high bottom low bottom famous people um uh lgbtqia uh, just all sorts of people who are run the potential of feeling marginalized in um in an aa meeting and um they thought that that would be the last pamphlet it was p13 the 13th pamphlet aa put out uh to give you some context um uh the god word agnostics and atheists in aa was p86 so i, I think uh, um, i have to check that so so we have actually produced a lot more pamphlets since then but they thought this this is it you know how many pamphlets can we manage i mean a dozen should be enough. Let's close it off there. That's our favorite number. But they produced this 13th pamphlet called, Do You Think You're Different? And it talks about people who uh, don't believe in a prayer answering, sobriety granting type of higher power, um, a personal God. They, they don't believe in that. And they found a place in AA someone else who's never had a legal drink who had a life of sex and drugs and alcohol and um couldn't get sober on their own either until they found uh um a buddy someone their own age someone who spoke about addiction and recovery in our own language bob and bill were both from Vermont. Uh, they were both, you know, sort of uh, fallen by the wayside, upper middle class, uh, white male privilege, heteronormative guys, and they could speak each other's language. And not from their first meeting, but eventually they would both stay sober. And I, I think that's the key to all recovery is someone who's been where i've been tells their story which i relate to and i feel empowered to share my story without rejection i i think that's what um alcoholics anonymous is and i'm uh, a happy member of several other recovery groups too and um that magic happens everywhere we know that that whether it's an eightfold path or a 12-step process or positive affirmations or cognitive behavioral therapy um people are finding recovery just like i did when i came and found you and I didn't even have to have a sincere desire to stop drinking. Good thing they took that word out. I think we could do without uh, a lot of the adjectives. Or, you know, like 
having had an experience as a result of the 12 steps would include everybody. Like it's hard to do the work without being changed by it. And uh, you add an adjective. The, the other one I love is rigorous honesty. I'm curious what the other kinds of honesty are. <laughs> you know, um, I think, you know, there's only one kind. <laughs> and it includes rigorous. Otherwise, you know, you keep saying this word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And and I I'm I mentioned this uh, pamphlet. Uh, do you think you're different? Because um, they were writing about it in box four five nine news and notes from the general service office because they're rewriting it. They are collecting news stories to present the wide diversity of Alcoholics Anonymous in, you know, the third decade of century 21 instead of, you know, 1976. And I think that's awesome. And I'm sharing that information from you because they're looking for stories and uh, think about it, you know, 500 to 800 words. Send send a story in if you came to AA and you felt I don't know if this can work for me. I I mean I had a lot of things that um, were working against me. One is I tried to get sober because I was ashamed and I didn't want to let people down. I tried to get sober because I could see that uh, other people died from. Uh, addiction and my alcohol addiction could uh, and probably would kill me. Um, you know, I, uh, in very short order, I found myself in uh, the emergency department of the Lakeshore General Hospital in Montreal, Quebec. Um, always, you know, in the early hours of Saturday, always drunk, right? And uh, I didn't draw the connection. Uh, and none of the doctors did there. Um, I mean, there's better record keeping now, maybe uh, if, if a teenager arrived at the same emergency department, um, you know, in three Saturdays, before their legal drinking age drunk, maybe they would, uh, you know, have a record of that and see, identify a pattern. Once I was found face up in my own vomit, uh, the morning after the night before in the boys changing room of the high school arena, um, which was right beside the high school where I was about to go to, uh, a dance to, uh, it was actually we were crashing it because we were in grade nine and it was a grade eight dance and we were going to show them how to party. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I ever got in there because I passed out, fell down. Um, the last thing I remember was they were saying I could hear the music starting in the gymnasium and we were outside outside. 
um, drinking uh, tequila. And I was just, I'd been drinking all day and I was lying there and they were saying, get up, get up. And I wanted to, I couldn't move. And the last thing I remember as I was fading uh, was a tug at my feet. And someone was saying, I'll just tie his uh, shoes to the bicycle rack. He'll be fine. Let's go. <laughs> like I'm a dog or a horse or something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I don't know what happened between then and the morning that I woke up in emergency. I, I, I you know, I there were just uh, fluorescent lights above my head. I was had a headache, not unfamiliar with that. Um, my stomach was in knots, not unfamiliar with that. Uh, there was a small window with light coming out, just like we see behind me here. And um, so I figured out, okay, what day is it? What time is it? You know, like it's it's not, you know, Friday night anymore. But I, at first I thought I was in the school. I was very disoriented and I learned that I'd had my stomach pumped. I w was thought for dead uh, when the ambulance arrived. And um, in the toxicology report, apparently I did cocaine for the first time in my life, which is outside of my socioeconomic range. Um, so who knows what happened between the last thing I remember and the next thing I remember. And um, there was a doctor with a clipboard, horn rim glasses, saying something to me like, young man, I hope you feel lucky to be alive. I felt a lot of things at that moment, but lucky to be alive does not describe at all what my experience was. So this was not someone who understood what I was going through like another member of AA would. And I didn't really listen to everything he had to say. He meant, well, of course he did. And um, I, I, I did. I, what, what did I feel? I felt horrified that I didn't know what had happened, afraid that I'd done something to embarrass myself or cause some sort of trouble that uh, would have harmed somebody else. I just, you know, it was like I, I couldn't grab my phone and, and ch see who I texted last and see what pictures I posted on Facebook. I, I had to wait till Monday. Can you imagine to find out what what, what happened? And, uh, uh, you know, how I'm going to get home, that was a thought. And... um so I wasn't scared. That didn't scare me. I, I was encouraged to go to an AA meeting um, after each of these trips. The next trip was um, I was beat up by some uh, Satan's Choice bikers. And they explained to me in um, sort of broken English, French as their native language, that there were no um, uh, freelance uh, uh, sellers of hashish in St. Anne de Bellevue, Quebec, uh, the West Island of Montreal. 
and uh, I had my nose broken and my money taken. And um, uh, anyway, that was my next trip. And then the third trip, I my girlfriend had left me and to show her how romantic I was, I um, in a drunken stupor, I slashed my wrists and I so my last trip to the emergency ward was it was I'm now sober. It's like three o'clock in the morning. And I just all I remember feeling then was embarrassed. Just I wanted to make do over like just, you know, like, you know, I, I was going to have to wear long sleeve shirts for the rest of the summer just to hide the reality of what I'd done. And I just I I, I would have rather been dead than to have to sort of explain sober you know what had happened and yeah it was just awful uh, none of these things uh, scared me sober so i'd been to aa and it wasn't until um my cousin came to montreal from toronto uh i was told who wanted to get sober and could i take her to a few meetings and i said yeah yeah absolutely and you know uh, I, I got sober the way everyone got sober in early A. I, I can't turn that off. You'll just have to listen to it if you hear the ringing. <laughs> um, uh, but it will stop. Um, you know, because what did I see in my cousin that I didn't see in me? Looking back now, I saw a life worth saving. And I didn't see that in myself. And um, I didn't think I had the integrity to stay sober. I I didn't think um, I was, you know, when, when I heard there, some of those are, uh, those unfortunates, the, uh, uh, um, you know, chronically uh, incapable of being honest with themselves. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course. Um, you know, I, you know, yeah, yeah, that could be me. And, but I was going to do whatever it takes to uh, help my cousin. And, uh, you know, the days started piling on, right? November 28th and November 29th, and then December 1st and December 10th. And, um, and then uh, I've already signed up for a young people's conference the first weekend in uh, January in St. Jerome, Quebec, just north of uh, just north of Montreal. So I'm kind of committed to that because, you know, you know, I'm not going to not show up because I said I would. And so that got me through Christmas and New Year's. And and I met people from uh, all over uh, Newport and New York and Boston and other parts of Canada, just all teenagers people in their 20s uh you know we had an international volleyball game where nobody kept score uh you know we if there was a dance i i didn't know people danced sober like you'll have to explain that to me but yeah it, it's catchy <laughs> uh you know there was a lot of things that when i left there I, I heard sobriety spoken in my own language. I heard people talking about, you know, getting back in their bands or um, going back to school or, 
um, finding meaningful employment that uh, gave value to themselves and others and, and how uh, good they felt about themselves. I, 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 people were trying to tell me that ever since I first came to my first meeting. There was no one who didn't want me to get sober that I know of. And, and now I could hear it because it was spoken in my language you know, teenager to teenager or young person to young person. And um, I, so that pamphlet helped quite a bit. And because um, I, I read those things and then, you know, and then eventually I met other teenagers. In fact, w when I see people who are young in recovery, I, you know, I often, you know, there's the young people's pamphlet that's constantly changing, which I think is great. And also there's the membership survey that shows that 1% of AA members uh, are under the age of 20. And so that's 20,000 people in recovery from alcoholism who never had a legal drink. If you put them all together, that would be a pretty impressive uh, arena of young people in AA. And they're doing a new, um, the International Conference of Young People in AA, uh, there was some audio and visual captured and they're preparing right now a uh, anonymous, you know, however they're going to do it, um, capture of that, uh, again, to help carry the message young person to young person, because no teenager would look at me and see anything they wanted <laughs> or see in me someone who could understand what they're going through. I, I can't imagine they would. And uh, because I don't speak their language, I really don't. I, I, I've been there. Um, um, but, you know, my, my experience was quite different. And, uh, you know, I could tell them how to fold a map and they'd say, what's a map? You know, <laughs> like how much help could I uh, bring, really? And I think all of these um, uh, pamphlets, all, all of these attempts to say, we know what you're going through. We've been there, too. Um, here's our story. I, I I love the fact that they're updated constantly. Uh, I know that the general sir one of the delays in the new copy of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, they're putting out a new uh, edition. Is there were so many stories offered, and over half the book is just one alcoholic talking to another. And again, the idea was we want to show the diversity of the experience of uh, addiction and recovery from all walks of life, all socioeconomic groups, all cultural backgrounds. And AA uh, heard the call and responded and they, they've had to take on new readers just to get through the piles of stories of, and I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to our uh, fourth, uh, fifth ed edition of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous for the the stories, especially, and um, and the font. I always am curious what the new font will be. 
so I outgrew uh, being a teenager, but I didn't outgrow being an atheist. And uh, again, like um, actually being one of the members who started the YES group, Youth Enjoying Sobriety, in uh, in Montreal, um, having access to secular AA, atheists and agnostic groups, uh, and it's it's the same AA, uh, no prayer. Um, AA works and always has. Again, it's talking my language, and I like it. And and having that there, I also feel like, uh, you know, an equal and one of many in, in, in any AA group. I really do. And if I feel for a moment that, uh, I don't know, I don't belong here, you know, I, I you know, it's just a few more days until my home group <laughs> meets again, and uh, I'll be good. Because, you know, every meeting can have a bad day. This meeting, maybe, uh, you'll have to tell me later. <laughs> and uh, um, I, uh, you know, so so uh, the other thing I will tell people if they're new, um, one of the jobs I haven't done in a long time, but answering the phones at the uh, intergroup office. I've done that in Montreal, and I've done that in Calgary, Alberta, and I've done that in Toronto. And um, I, I remember the surprise of uh, my co-worker, the person answering the phones on another desk, when they could tell I had uh, what we would call a, a wet one. You know, someone who's sober curious, someone who's wondering if they have a problem and what to do with it. And uh, uh, and I, and they could hear me say, so you're thinking of going to an AA meeting to find out. And so so they don't have a call. They're just listening to me talking to this person. And I say, bad idea. The AA member, of course, is shocked. And so is the person on the other line. And I said, it's a bad idea to make a, such an important decision in your life based on one meeting, one night or afternoon or morning, whatever time you go to your meeting. Because, you know, uh, it's it's not a formula. It won't be the same every, every meeting you go to and, and every night. AA isn't McDonald's. It's not the same eating experience. It's not the same atmosphere. It's not the same price range. It's not the same, uh, you know, look and feel uh, at every AA meeting you go to. Um, we're kind of ma and pa shops, and there's a different cook in the kitchen every week, you know, a, a different chairperson, a different format, a different. And so if you're curious about AA, I think that's a really good idea to find out about AA, but maybe go to a dozen meetings in uh, uh, over the next couple of weeks. And the ones you really like, go back to them. Find what 
what works for you. You'll find your people out there. I have, and I'm sure you will too. And uh, that is the most amazing thing about AA is that uh, every person who decides we should start a meeting on such and such a night in such and such a place and they have to sit down and think okay what are we going to read something uh, what's our format going to be and that's sort of like the first group conscience and then they'll do that and then other people will join and change it and they might quit <laughs> that's okay they'll probably go somewhere else um uh, so uh, I just uh, I'm I'm glad uh, Ward is here. I don't mean to embarrass him, but uh, he um, is a non-alcoholic uh, trustee emeritus, and I remember him going around in 2011, um, thinking, you know, AA, you guys do such a good job. What you really need is uh, a pamphlet for the atheists and agnostics. Isn't that a good idea? Because, you know, some of them, like a lot of people come in here, one of their big barriers for staying is we do talk about God quite a bit, which he was all in favor for. It was his business. He is, uh, I think, in the U.S. Episcopalian. Uh, you Please correct me if I got that wrong. A minister. And... And our non-alcoholic trustees are people who um, uh, love AA um, and work for nothing to help uh, the still-suffering alcoholic find AA and, in some regards, help us from not, you know, you know, burning crosses at each other's meetings or whatever. Right? You know, just they, they sort of help smooth. They they bring a, a real sober second thought to a lot of what we do. But uh, in 2011, uh, that was a time uh, that um, it, it there was in the AA I was in. I could see a polarization of AA. In the AA I came to, there wasn't much of that at all. No one ever challenged me on, um, no one ever used the term real alcoholic. Um, no one challenged me on my worldview. Um, if I said something that wasn't, you know, a, official story, uh, they just said, thanks for sharing. And, um, but 2011 uh, was a time when, um, you know, there was uh, sort of the radical free thinkers. There was fundamentalism. Most of AA lived in the middle and, you know, wasn't part of that. But, but there was, um, in some of the meetings I went to, I saw a mean-spiritedness that um, I hadn't seen when I first came to AA. And uh, it concerned me, it concerned Ward. And um, um, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of what we try to do to make things better in our home group or AA as a whole uh, won't happen while we're in the room. 
<laughs> and we eventually did, thanks to the people in the UK, got our atheists and agnostics uh, pamphlet. And um, and it was uh, agreed upon by um, the General Service Conference in Canada and the US to uh, adapt and amend that. So now it's available in Spanish, French, and English. And it's it's what we always wanted. It's um, atheists and agnostics um, telling their story in their own language, their candid approach to Alcoholics Anonymous, what works and what doesn't. And um, and we have that now. And um, I think we have a, a lot going for us now. Like I've always been a big fan of living sober, uh, but honestly, it... Um, some of its recommendations like crochet and <laughs> some of its languages hey, maybe it's time for a little revamp there too um but you know it spoke the language of the day 40 years of aa experience based on hundreds of thousands of aa case studies it it really did offer uh uh, here's 31 uh, ideas that uh, have worked for us. Uh, interestingly enough, there's one uh, a day for, uh, I run a meeting where sometimes we read from that and I just pick whatever day of the month, that's the chapter we read. It's just a simple way of doing things. And it's it's well designed for that. It's short and sweet. And, you know, it, it stands in the shadow of some of our other uh the primary literature, but um, over 7 million copies have been sold. I mean, that would be outstanding. Uh, again, if it wasn't in the shadow of a big book that sold 40 million copies, but it, it helped me and I know it's helped a lot of people. But I, I really think AA comes down to uh, one alcoholic talking to another listening to the each other and with the steps without the steps with a version of the steps or exactly as written um that's that's aa in action i think and it really is like one day at a time um like patrick uh, i teared up when he was talking about that time in the 90s i was busy um you know, I had two young children, uh, career problems, a mortgage, um, stress, uh, but I had a friend in need. And uh, I remember saying to Patrick, you know, I'm busy, uh, but you matter to me. And I've got time for you. Always have, always will. And I remember saying that. And it was like I was watching myself say it. Like, I didn't even know I had that kind of integrity. Like, I didn't when I got here. You know, it was a byproduct. There's no integrity step. <laughs> it's a byproduct of the other work and the steps, the traditions, and so on and so forth. And Patrick's paying the price for that now. I'm, you know, like, there, there's no spiking the ball. I win. I'm super sober like i'm back working on post-traumatic stress disorder issues because the symptoms are 
you know, interfering with my happiness today. And I have to, you know, sort of start again. And, um, and so Patrick's, you know, on the receiving end of that, I, I helped him and it's cost him dearly, <laughs> but it's always a two way street. That's the great, um, and I'm, this is the last thing I'll say. That's the great democracy of AA. Um, someone who's, uh, still reeking of booze and someone who's 47 years sober has something to say that is of equal value in every AA meeting. Um, it, when I go to put on a meeting at uh, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto in their detox with other group members, it's always the person with the least amount of sobriety that gives the 20-minute talk because it's most relatable. Like there's nobody in that detox who wants to sign up for the AA 40 year plan. You know, that's like two uh, life sentences, right? They don't want what I have, they really don't. And I'm not offended by that. Uh, but um, someone with eight months sobriety, that might be something, can you tell me about that? You know, I'm listening, you know, that might reach them in, in a way that you know, I'm not even credible. <laughs> you know, I, I'm happy to read something or share, you know, what's going on for me today. But, um, you know, like, I, I know how this works. People have to hear from people they can relate to. And uh, I think that's the great thing about AA. I'm, uh, th thanks, everybody. <laughs> you know, like, like, I really thought this wasn't a big day. I wasn't even going to say anything about it. But uh, I'm I'm happy you're here. Um, I'm happy I'm still around, and um, uh, until next time, thanks everybody.